0: Scripture on which the sermon is based this morning comes from Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 11 through verse 34. So setting from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, seller of purple goods and a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, I had a conversation with a student years ago that I'm guessing many of you have had at least some version of in your own past. So Let's imagine someone comes to you and says, look, If I had been born in India, I would probably be a Hindu. If I had been born into a Buddhist family, I'd probably be Buddhist. It's the same thing with Christianity. People just tend to believe whatever other people around them believe. And so even if I feel somewhat drawn to Christianity, it's probably just because a lot of people in Western society believe it. Religion is just this expression of a people's need to feel alike. To feel like they're part of something. You ever heard anything like that? And I have to admit, this is one of those objections to Christianity that kind of stumped me for many years. How do you answer the sense of privilege that your birth, something you had no control over, afforded you when it comes to access to information, to education, to instruction, I mean, for Americans, you know, we have, we have this per sense of personal freedom as an unquestioned value. But of course, if you grew up in an Asian context, you'd likely have a much stronger sense of responsibility to community, for instance, especially to your family than other people around you would. But what happens very interesting is this leap of logic because then people say, well, since I seem to have come about my belief because of the convenience of my birthplace, Doesn't that take away my right to tell someone else who may have grown up in a different context that they are wrong about what they believe? I mean, you came to a a different conclusion about life than I did. So therefore, you can have your belief, knock yourself out. Just don't get uppity and try to tell me that my beliefs are wrong. And again, like I said, this objection to Christian truth claims had rattled me until I actually started to think that through for a second because it's easy to miss the rather gargantuan leap of logic in that thinking. Think about how this works. Look, we're different from how we were raised, and that's how we came to different religious beliefs, okay? So therefore, there is no such thing as religion and the the right to exclude anyone else's religion for what they believe. That's just a bit much. Think about it. If I was born in the 16th century, I very well might have believed that the earth was flat. But that doesn't mean that the modern scientific discovery about astronomy is somehow on shaky ground. Just because we believe differently doesn't mean that there's no truth in religion at all. And besides that, I am not even think more than that, there's all kinds of places in Scripture that say that when the gospel began to unleash itself in the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago, It was able to transcend all cultural styles and backgrounds. These earliest believers were not some kind of monochrome community of affinity-based members. Far from it. The diversity of these early Christian communities were themselves evidence of the transcendent truth of Christian claims. It helped people to believe uh, that Christianity was true when they saw that. I mentioned back last spring a book by a guy named Larry Hurtado called Destroyer of the Gods where he outlines how Christianity was by far one of the most persecuted religions in the entire Roman Empire's history. And yet people kept converting to it. And he asked the question, why would they do that? And he lists five reasons why. You know what the first one is? Is the fact that it was multi-ethnic and multiracial. That was compelling for people. Now look, I realize it's a little bit of speculation, but I want to make a little bit of a bet that it was this exact multicultural nature of the church that brought good old Dr. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, to faith as well. I'm gonna tell you why I believe that. Because you may have noticed in our study through the book of Acts, that right here in Acts chapter 16, the pronouns change. Up until this point, Luke has been saying them and they. Now he starts to talk about us and we. So from here on out, we find that Luke has joined Paul's merry band. Apparently, as we are in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey, by the time he got to Troas, he picks up some followers that we know now include Luke himself. So by the way, what we have from Acts 15 on are eyewitness accounts of the spread of Christianity into Macedonia of that time. (laughs) And the first thing that Luke observes is the conversion of faith to three individuals that he gives us in Acts chapter 16, who if you were trying, you could not make come from more different backgrounds. So much so that it cost theologian F.F. F. Bruce to say this. He says, three individuals are singled out by Luke among those whose lives were influenced for good by the gospel at Philippi. And they differ so much from one another that he might be thought to have selected them deliberately in order to show how the saving power of the name of Jesus was shown in the most diverse types of men and women. Did you catch what he's saying? He's saying Luke chose these stories of these three people to show that Christianity does not put people into preset molds, but rather it deals with them at the point of their greatest need, It does not matter where you grew up. It does not matter the personality you were born with. It doesn't matter that those are people who are just religious like that or that their civilization was just superstitious like that. No, the early church was singularly unique in speaking and thinking about spiritual life, but it changed everyone who encountered it with radically different backgrounds. Same ultimate truth, different backgrounds, amazing. So I wanna look at these three characters of Lydia, of the slave girl and, and, and the jailer to try to bring out this diversity and see what we might draw from each of their experiences. First of all, let's talk about Lydia. Let's set the stage here first of all. There doesn't seem to have been a synagogue in Philippi. Uh, For whatever reason, that was a problem for Paul because that was his custom was to go to the synagogue and begin his missionary effort there. So instead, on the Sabbath day, they decide to head out by the river. And what they find out there is a group of women who are having a Bible study. And in verses 14 and 15, we encounter a woman named Lydia. Now, there's a couple things that we know about her. First of all, we know that she was successful. Lydia was upper class. Why? Because she comes from a city called Thyatira a city that was just on the other side of the Aegean Sea, which we know from ancient Near Eastern sources was a city that was known for its clothing dyes. We've even got some old archaeological evidence that shows that there was like a a guild of dyers that lived there in uh, ancient times. And of course, purple uh, dye was very much of a luxury in that day. So it's not too much to speculate. Lydia is this successful upper-class businesswoman who would have hailed from would have hailed from Eastover or Highland Park or, or Buckhead or, or Mountain Brook or, or Central Gardens, wherever, whatever city you're from. Not only that, she's a very religious person. It says that she was a God-fearer, someone who appreciated the morality of Judaism, and, uh, but, but of course didn't go the whole way with converting. In other words, Lydia just sort of looked like, quite frankly, a typical congregation member here at Christ Press. Successful, upper crust, thoughtful, maybe curious, but what I want you to notice, though, is how Lydia comes to faith. She comes to faith through a Bible study. Paul and Silas are leading a discussion at the city gates, and the passage says, very interestingly, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That is very interesting. Paul did not, God did not call Lydia directly, but rather through the preaching of Paul, but what it says very carefully is is that it wasn't Paul's words or Lydia's heart that led her to having faith, actually just the opposite. Luke says that her response of faith was only possible because God had opened her heart to it. And by the way, this is not the first time that Paul talks this way that Luke talks this way. In Acts 13:44, we're told that as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. One commentator said, Lydia's heart was not opened because she responded to the gospel. No, she responded to the gospel because her heart was opened. So like we talked about last week, that order is absolutely important. Why does my faith exist? Why am I exercising believing? Answer, because he moved first. The spirit moves first. He takes the initiative and so Lydia's path to faith, I think, is kind of common among people like us. She was sitting, listening intently to Paul. She's a god fear. She's probably got the basic message. But somewhere through the presentation, something clicks. Her eyes get opened. Again, it's a little bit speculative, but not too much. When we realize that as a god fear, my guess is she probably had a sense of who God was and that he was holy and that she needed to live up to that standard. But as Paul and Silas start unpacking what Jesus came to do, all of that striving, all of that struggling, all of that wrestling with the law and frustration that comes with it, it just had to vaporize. And suddenly she saw what his perfect sacrifice was all about. Look, I can tell you that this was actually my path to faith when I grew up. I grew up in church with very faithful Christian parents who had me in church. But it really wasn't until seminary, when I was sitting in my New Testament professor's class, when everything came together. He was lecturing about the fact that when Jesus had died on the cross, he took away our sins, but that's not all he did. The perfect life that he lived was actually given to us as a perfect moral record. And what he said is, is if all you have is the first and not the second, you probably are something of an insecure Christian. Because even though God takes care of my sins past, what happens if I do it again in the future? And as Dr. Chamlin was talking for this and speaking to me, all of a sudden the lights came on. And I walked out of that, 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 that uh, biblical studies building, headed back to my dormitory on the back of the property. And I even said it out loud. I was like, ah, so I don't have to do this. The Lord had opened my heart at last to believe. So can you relate to Lydia? Secondly, though, let's look at this slave girl. The next story in verses 16 to 24, deals with a young slave girl who honestly uh, is just a mess. Uh, our translation says that this is a woman who had a spirit of divination. It's really interesting. If you go back to the literal translation in Greek, it would read, she had the spirit of Python, like the snake. <laughs> What is that about? Well, the spirit of Python was the spirit was to be believed of a literal statue of a Python that guarded the mythic temple of Apollo there in Philippi where the Delphic Oracle was in ancient Greek culture. The Greeks used to call these people who had this spirit of Python as ventriloquists because they would sort of get this sense of clairvoyance and prediction about the future and they would speak in rather weird voices and strange languages. And so lots of people get thrown off by the fact that when this girl starts to speak, she actually says things, weirdly, that are true. Did you notice that in verse 17? It says, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim you the way of salvation. Uh, Yeah, uh, correct, You're, you're right. But what do we make sense of that? Well, I think first of all, we have to realize that there's other places in the New Testament where demons are indeed capable of saying true things. Remember Luke 4, 34, where a demon says to Jesus, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. So yes, demons are capable of saying things that are true. But regardless, Paul is super bugged by all this, probably because it's the demon's intention to associate Paul's message with the occult in the minds of the people that are listening to him, which of course would have undermined his message. So he yells at the demon to depart, and immediately she's free. But actually, is she free? Because what we begin to find then is her value to her enslavers is now suddenly gone. She can't make them any more money with her powers. And it gets Paul and Silas in a whole heap of trouble. So they manufacture a bunch of trumped up charges against them before the religious council, and they beat them up and throw them into jail. I mean, it's a whole mess that happens there in Philippi. But what I find interesting about this girl's path into faith is that she did not come to Jesus through a Bible study. That would not have been effective for this woman. She wouldn't have gotten it at that point. What she needed though was a powerful spiritual intervention, a confrontation, if you will, by the Apostle Paul. Now look, we could spend a whole couple of sermons on talking about the role of demons and how they work and whether they sort of operate in the same way in our day. But there was one commentator that I thought brought out something that I found fascinating about that. And it's simply this. You cannot separate what we see in the girl's spiritual oppression from the structures of oppression that surrounded her and kept her sick. In other words, what we have here through Luke is a depiction of demons who are exploiting this woman through the cruelty of her employers. And what we find then, therefore, is that these two ideas almost always come together. That is, that when all of a sudden we encounter people who are wrestling with all kinds of spiritual, sometimes what you and I would call mental illness, it is supported and sustained and carried along by structures that, that maintain it and that actually fester it. In other words, you may have sin that is individually owned by individuals in the world, but as those sinners begin to operate in the world, they construct structures that themselves perpetuate the sin that they've borne. And the point that it seems that that, that is bringing out by Luke is, this woman's mental illness was directly connected to what she was going through physically. And in order to minister to the needs of the one, you have to minister to the needs of the other. It is both an individual responsibility and a structural responsibility. When I was in seminary, I did a summer internship that included a trip to New York City to work with the homeless. This was 1993, almost 30 years ago. And New York was a very different place then than it was today. And we had an encounter with more than just a few mentally ill people that were living on the streets. One in particular that confronted me rather strongly, let's just say, and I was unnerved about it, and probably a little more condescending than I certainly should have been. But as we went back to the agency where we were working with and the facility we were working with, the guy who was the, the, the leader, the director of that facility told me something that I've never forgotten. He said, look Les, he said, if I took away your home and your health and your air conditioner and your family and your security, and your money, and your food, and your work, my guess is you'd approach something that you and I would call crazy. That's how you would react. What was his point? His point is we have to deal when we seek to minister with not only the spiritual, but also the physical. Why else do we have two offices of elder and deacon? One emphasizes the spiritual, the other takes care of the physical. Powerful point that comes to us in looking at not just Lydia, but also the slave girl. Wasn't that different from how Lydia came to faith? Well, that sets us up nicely for the third story we get, which is about the jailer. I find this story to be amazing in verses 25 through 34. Start with Paul and Silas, first of all. They they get shuttled through this legal system, which of course wrongfully imprisoned them. And there they are, they're beaten and they probably lie in a heap in a prison cell. But you know what they're doing? They're singing. (laughs) They're singing hymns to pass the time, which is amazing, is it not? But I want you to hold that thought. We're coming back to that. Meanwhile, an earthquake happens, and the prison doors swing wide open, and suddenly the jailer wants to commit suicide. Uh, What in the world is that all about? Well, we actually have some evidence to suggest that these kinds of jobs were oftentimes given to retired soldiers. And so you have in this jailer a guy whose life is neither successful or, or rosy, but nor is it kind of crazy and going nuts like the other person. The jailer's just an average Joe. He's a classic blue-collar good old boy who works hard for a living. He's probably practical. He's probably got a lot of pride about his life. And he knows that when those prisoners escape, that the part of the job was your life is ransom for theirs if they escaped. So he thinks to himself, well, either I die, a disgraced worker, or I can make it look like the prisoners killed me on their way out. Either way, I'm a dead man. And so he starts to fall on his sword. Well, then amazingly, before he does so, he hears these prisoners, who are just singing hymns, by the way, calling out to him and saying, we're still here, don't do it. And it absolutely destroys this guy. But it doesn't destroy him in the way in which he was about to destroy himself, of course. Look, the jailer is just a regular guy. He's one of those who's just a a normal dude. But what's interesting about men like this is you really don't explain the gospel to people like this. You have to show it to them. What ends up being compelling for somebody like this was the integrity of Paul and Silas. Don't, don't, By the way, don't read too much when he says, you know, what must I do to be saved? You and I have associations with that phrase that almost certainly he did not actually have. He wasn't asking, can you guys tell me how to get to heaven when I die? That's not what he meant. <clears throat> what he's saying is, you too have something I don't have. What is it? How can I get myself out of this particular position? You know, years ago, there was a young lady involved in my ministry by the name of Laura Treppendahl, which many of you remember. Laura was tragically struck and killed by a drunk driver right over there on West Jackson. And I got to sit in the courtroom for the sentencing of her killer. And I most remember the judge talking about how many letters he had received as testimonials on behalf of the accused for them to, for him to be light on his sentence. But the judge went out of his way to say that there were two letters that moved him the most. One was from Laura's father The other was from Laura's boyfriend at the time, uh, my friend Dallas Ketchum. And what the letters basically unpacked was to say, look, judge, we know that you have a responsibility to society to exact payment for what this young man has done. But we need you to know that it is our belief that we think that God had a purpose in everything that happened in Laura's life including her untimely passing. So if you are going to punish, do not do it out of our sense of vindictiveness. You do what you have to do for our community, but don't do it on our behalf because we've already forgiven him. Now look, that's about 20 years ago. Come up on 20 years ago. I don't think a year goes by in Oxford where I don't meet someone whose lives were impacted by the death of Laura Trepandall and the way in which the Christian community rallied around her death in that particular way. Why? Because it was so full of integrity. It was so full of forgiveness. Isn't that amazing? Lydia comes through a Bible study. The slave girl comes to Christ through this intense, powerful experience. And then you got the jailer, just a good old boy who saw someone acting right. Isn't that amazing? What lessons are we supposed to draw from this? I think there's at least two. First one is this. If you are here this morning suspicious of Christianity because it's, quote, just the way that you grew up, and if you'd grown up somewhere else, you would think differently, may I say as gently as I can, I just don't think you're paying attention to this story, or even the world around you, because the latter is absolutely true. Christianity is absolutely waning in the West. America is secularizing. More and more young people are marking none when it comes to religious preference. However, Christianity is booming in places like Africa, in places like India, absolutely in places like China. Think about that. And the truth is, there is no other world religion that transforms a culture from the inside out without replacing that culture with some version of Middle Eastern society. (laughs) Which makes you really think about this story, doesn't it? John Stott, in his wonderful little commentary, you must pick this up if you're ever studying Acts, reports on, some, on an old, ancient, and very controversial prayer that Jewish people, Jewish men in particular, were known to pray during Paul's day. Listen to this thing. "'Blessed are you, O Lord our God, ruler of the universe, "'who has created me a human and not a beast, "'a man and not a woman, an Israelite and not a Gentile, circumcised and not uncircumcised, free and not a slave. <laughs> still observant Jews today. Stock goes on to say that even still observant Jews today will recite a prayer that simply goes, Lord, thank you, O oh God, for not making me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. And so here you have Paul, probably the most Jewish man there ever was, <laughs> and that he begins to build his Philippian church with a woman, with a slave, and with a Gentile. So with all due respect, I would ask you that the burden of proof is on you, O skeptic, to figure out why that could happen. How does that happen to the Apostle Paul? How do you explain that kind of change? And I don't think that you discover it until you look at the second fact and that is what's going on inside that prison cell with Paul and Silas. Listen, their mission to that community was to preach and teach, to confront, and to suffer. And there they are in their prison cell singing, where in the world would they get that kind of power when they're probably there laying on the ground caked in their own dried blood? Well, Paul gives us a sense of that in Colossians 1.24 when he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now what in the world is he talking about? What is lacking in Jesus' afflictions? Simply stated, it's this. The lack is the gap that exists between the sufferings of the present reach of the gospel and the suffering that's going to be necessary until the gospel gets out to all the Gentiles. That's the gap. And what Paul is saying is, All of Jesus' followers are on a mission. We are on a mission in order to be able to bridge that gap, but that gap is going to be bridged by sufferings, and somehow he's able to sing about it. How? This is the question. The question we've got to ask is, what does Paul think about suffering? A man who over and over again would come back and say about his own suffering, that that suffering was born by Jesus on the cross. Because what suffering tends to do in the heart of a person is to expand itself beyond its present reach and into every little nook and cranny of life. And it says to us, it's always gonna be this way. Death will always have the final say. Your fears will never be truly solved. Your illness will finally take you down. Suffering calls for things that are ultimate. And yet Jesus says, no, I took your suffering on my shoulders. And because I took it before you, I was able to absorb it and to neutralize it. So what that means is is all of your suffering is temporary. It's temporary. It's light and momentary affliction, (laughs) Paul will call it. Light and momentary compared to the glory that Jesus has in store for his people because of what he did on the cross. And you know what they did? They sang. They sang. They sang through it. And in the midst of it, God, the whole time, Jesus is continuing. He's building his kingdom all while his people teach and confront and suffer. Hey, that's a pretty good call to mission, isn't it? May it be true of us in this place. Let's pray together. And Lord Jesus, would you hear the cry of every heart in this room as even they wrestle and grapple with their own sufferings, their own struggles, for the people that hurt, for the people that are longing for you to solve whatever problem is in in front of them. Would you draw them very near to your word who constantly comes back and, and nurtures grace in us by reminding us of the cross. Father, we would look with the jailer and say, what must we do to be saved and so give us Jesus, Lord Jesus. Even this, give us yourself even this morning as we sing, just like they did in that prison cell. And we ask that you would do that for us in Jesus' name. Amen.